Alan said something about the events of this week. I pretty much slept all week. Did I miss something? (laughs) What a week, huh? Now, let me ask you this, and this really sets the tone for what we're going to look at today. Do you think anyone at any point before this past week could have predicted what we've seen in the last several days and really the last couple of months. Do you think anybody could have predicted that? I think there's been a lot of prognast, prog, prog, prognosticators who, uh, who, who have said this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, and nobody's been right. Nobody. And everybody's efforts to find a new normal or to find um, what... How do we navigate what's going on in our world today? Everybody's efforts have failed miserably. Because we are in situations right now as individuals, as families, as the church that we could have never dreamed of. Uh, Let's again go back to the first quarter of last year. If somebody could have predicted what happened in 2020, they'd probably be wealthy and powerful because we could have prepared, but... They didn't, we didn't, and here we are. And while there's a lot we could address from 2020, from the first part of 2021, I think the Bible does a much better job than we ever could of addressing these things. And today, we're going to see Jesus predict something much more unthinkable than the things that we have seen and been a part of in this last year plus. And what we're going to look at today is going to set the stage for the beginning of our journey through the majestic passage, passages, I guess, that that the passage that is Matthew 24 and Matthew 25. And um, I've both been excited and scared to death to approach this text because, wow, (laughs) who am I And, and who is sufficient for these things? But today, uh, we're, we're only going to look at three verses today. I hope that doesn't disappoint you. I hope, you're not look, hope you weren't expecting me to give you all the answers today. Um, I'm only setting the table today. So if you would, please stand. And we're going to look at Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 3. And we read this and believe and confess and proclaim that these are the very words of God. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Let's pray. Father, we confess, believe, proclaim, rejoice in the fact that your way is perfect. Right here, right now, we believe your word is perfect. We believe that your spirit is perfect and able to help us understand and apply these words that we're looking at today, your words. God, would you prepare us? Would you strengthen us? Would you convict us? Would you draw us this morning by the power of that very same Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead? Would you teach us in your power through your Spirit this morning? We ask it and expect it in Jesus' name. 
Amen. You may be seated and fasten your safety belts. Keep all hands inside the rod. If the cabin depressurizes, sorry. So, okay, we weren't here last week. We were in up near Cincinnati, a part of a wedding uh, with every plan in the world changed because of everything that's going on. And then the last two weeks of uh, December of 2020, we weren't in Matthew. We, we had a Christmas message, and then we had an end-of-year, beginning-of-year kind of message. So it's been a bit, okay? Three weeks in between the last message in Matthew and where we're at today. So it's going to be beneficial for us to take a look back, not just on where we left off, but on where we've been in our trip through Matthew's gospel uh, before we get into this stage-setting passage that we'll be looking at today, which will carry us forward through Matthew 24 and 25. Um, we have said from the very beginning of this study, uh, this study in the gospel of Matthew, which we started in September of 2018. Man, the world was different then, wasn't it? Uh, we said from the very beginning that Matthew has one main purpose in writing this gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Matthew's job, Matthew's goal, is to portray Jesus through Jesus' life story as the king. Okay? But really, it's very important to remember to whom Matthew is appealing in his biographical efforts. He's writing to a primarily Jewish audience. And I'm going to take my pen here and I'm going to circle that word Jewish because that's a big deal. Now, it's not, not that this is not for us. It is. It's in the Scripture and God knows that we need it. But Matthew is writing to a primarily Jewish audience. And he's laboring to convince these Jews that Jesus is their king, their long-awaited Messiah, the one that prophets had promised as a deliverer since God's promise to Adam and Eve of a seed who would crush the serpent's head. Matthew's main point in his whole gospel in all 28 chapters is to show that Jesus, the physical son of the Virgin Mary, conceived in her womb by the Holy Spirit of God, this Jesus was and is that Messiah. So from the very beginning of chapter 1, the tracing of Jesus' earthly genealogy, we see that he is a descendant. He, he traces his ancestry back to two people specifically, King David and Abraham. Okay? So, obviously, King David stands for the kingship. So, the king of the Jews is appropriately shown to have his ancestors, as his ancestors, the patriarch of the Jewish people, Abraham, and the greatest king these Jews had ever known, King David. Matthew then goes on to explain the miraculous events that describe Jesus' conception and the confirmation of that spirit-wrought conception through the announcement to Joseph, who would be his earthly father, that Joseph should not fear to take Mary as his wife, for, God says, that the angel says to uh, Joseph, uh, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son... And you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. And that's a big deal. And we spend a lot of time there. And then Matthew shows the significance of these events in the plan of God when he says in the next two verses, 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. This child, Matthew says, will fulfill God's promise through Isaiah to be Emmanuel which we come out of Advent and Christmas and we talk about Emmanuel and we sing about Emmanuel. And that means that God is with us. Emmanuel is God with us. Now, don't miss that. Jesus, who will save His people, they belong to Him, from their sins will be who? Emmanuel, God with us. God, uh, Matthew makes a point to establish that in chapter 1 from the beginning. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is sent to save, sent to deliver God's people. Jesus is the Messiah the Jews have waited for for thousands of years now. Matthew then details the struggle of Herod, who called himself the king of the Jews to try to snuff out the life of this afore-announced one, when Magi, who we said were kingmakers from the eastern Persian empire, arrive and say that they're looking to worship, quote, He who has been born king of the Jews. And they were, of course, referring to baby Jesus, meek and mild at that time, right? They say that they were led by a star and also led by an ancient prophecy. And that ancient prophecy we see in Matthew chapter 2, verse 6. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Well, how do you think Herod felt about that? Hearing that, hey, we're here to worship the newly born king of the Jews... He was none too pleased to hear all this, and he asked the Magi to let him know when they find this child so that he could come and worship him as well. But the Magi get warned in a dream to skip town without including Herod in their gift-giving and their worship, and Herod is incensed. See what I did there? Sorry. Herod is incensed and calls for all children in Bethlehem, two years and younger, to be killed in an effort to exterminate this perceived threat to his kingdom. But Joseph, also Jesus' earthly father, was also warned in a dream that he needed to take his wife and her child out of Bethlehem to avoid this. So he wakes them up and they flee to Egypt where they remain safe until their return after Joseph has another dream telling him it's safe to return now. And they return not to Judea, not to Bethlehem, but rather to a little no-name backwater town called Nazareth where they would remain in obscurity for nearly 30 years. And then in chapter 3, things get fired up. A crazy man shows up. John the Baptist arrives on the scene, and he has one main role in this narrative. John's job is to announce the coming of the kingdom of heaven. His message is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is what? At hand. Everybody put your hand in front of your face. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That means it's here. It's close. It's among us. Now don't miss this. God has sent Himself in the form of Jesus as the King of the Jews. And Matthew, in appealing to these Jews, refers to God's kingdom how? Not as the kingdom of God, because he wouldn't want to use the sacred name of God. That would be offensive to his Jewish audience. So he refers to God's kingdom as the kingdom of heaven. So the kingdom of God in Matthew is primarily referred to as the kingdom of heaven. And John is letting everyone know that God's kingdom is what? It's at hand. It's here. The prophets had foretold that one would come in the spirit and power of Elijah to prepare the way of the Lord, to announce His kingdom, and John is that one. 
And he's preparing the way before Jesus to come and put that heavenly kingdom on full display. And from Jesus' baptism by John in chapter 3 and onward, that's exactly what Jesus does. After overcoming the direct temptations from the devil himself in Matthew 4, Jesus begins ministering in the Galilean area, making his main headquarters in a little town called Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee, where he calls disciples and he begins teaching and showing the power of God by healing, quote, Matthew 4, 23, every disease and every affliction among the people. So now take just a second, okay? Put yourself in the place of these first century Jews. For all your life, you have heard that God was going to deliver His people. You've heard that Mashiach, Messiah, is coming. You've heard that God would send a forerunner to prepare the way for that Messiah. John comes and does exactly that and they held John in high regard. And then this man shows up. This man from Nazareth. And he's showing the very power of God by banishing sickness and disease from Palestine in the words of John MacArthur. As one of these Jews at this time, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, what do you think you're thinking? It's happening. God's delivering us. Could this be the Messiah? God has sent our Messiah, but, but there's a problem. Because yes, He's acting in power by healing and delivering, but the things that He's saying are a little bit problematic for them. Because his teaching is not what they're expecting to hear. His healing and his acts of power are. But when you get into Matthew chapter 5 and you go through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus seems to be explaining that the kingdom of heaven is, well, different. Different than what they're thinking. Different than what they're expecting. The Beatitudes, right? Last time Alan was here, or maybe not the last time, one of the times he was here, he preached on the Beatitudes. This is Jesus' inaugural main message. This is how he starts that message. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets. Who were before you? What? Huh? The kingdom! The Messiah! Deliverance! Freedom! God with us! And this is what you're telling us? That doesn't sound like throwing off the yoke of Roman oppression talk. Where's the guns, guts, and glory stuff? That makes for revolution. So pretty early on in Jesus' ministry, even as crowds gather and follow Him around, the Jewish nation as a whole was shaking their heads in doubt. 
This cannot. This is not our Messiah. Oh, he's probably a prophet or a messenger, but no, he's not the one. And their religious leaders, the scribes, lawyers, Pharisees, Sadducees, well, they're pretty much all in agreement that not only is he not the Messiah, but he's a demon-possessed heretic who's leading the masses away from their traditions and the safety of their man-made rules, and he must be silenced. And it goes so far that even John the Baptist at one point from prison sends messengers to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? From jail. About to have his head cut off. So over the course of the midsection of Matthew's gospel, we see account after account of Jesus' miracles and teachings which serve to display and explain the kingdom of heaven and to call people to repentance and obedience to that now-arrived kingdom. And while people marvel at these miracles and teachings, most do not line up with Jesus in His kingdom. Which leads us to the last week of His life, which we started looking at there in Matthew chapter 21, with Jesus' triumphal entry. And even there, the crowds are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, as Jesus rode that foe into Jerusalem. But even then, most still didn't see the fullness of who He was or what He was doing. They still regard him as, who is this? And I didn't put the next verse up there, sorry. And they say, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So they still didn't get it, even though they're yelling, Hosanna. And as this last week of his life has progressed, Jesus cleansed the temple. He cursed a fig tree. That's going to be big, by the way. He taught day by day in the temple until he pronounces seven woes upon the scribes and Pharisees in chapter 23. And at the end of chapter 23, he laments over the city of Jerusalem. And what was in that lament? That was the last passage that we looked at in Matthew back in December. Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 to 39. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And in looking at this passage, we saw that Jesus had spoken in a grieving fashion over this city that was the center of Jewish cultural and religious life. He was proclaiming his grief for the city as a sign of his grief over political and religious Israel, lamenting over their unwillingness to be protected and blessed and, I would say, delivered by him, with the end result of their refusal being that the house that used to be the house of God is now their house and is being left to them desolate. He further bemoans that they would not see him again, implying that he was leaving, but that he would be back. And then they would say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And with that, he leaves the temple, leaving Jerusalem, and thus Israel, to their desolation. So now, that brings us to our passage today. With all we've just recovered in mind, now look at Matthew chapter 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. So, here we literally see Jesus leaving the temple. 
And again, that's quite a bit more significant than other times that he had walked out of that building. Here in the middle of the last week of his life, Jesus, having verbally jousted with the religious leaders and lamenting over the corporate being that was the nation Israel, Jesus left the temple. Like we said in the review, the presence of God in the person of Jesus was leaving the temple tangibly, leaving that house desolate. And though no one but Jesus knew it, it would be the last time he left that site, that building, which has more ramifications than they knew as well. And so his going away is a really big deal, though though it would have seemed like just another trip out of town, like they'd done through the rest of the days of this week. And in what seems like a little bit odd thing to me, as he's leaving, it says that his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Now, as we've said before, Jesus' disciples and Jesus himself would have come in and out of this city and seen this conglomeration of buildings many, many times in his life. Here's a picture. This might give you an idea of what they were pointing at. This is Herod's temple, and you see the different buildings. You've got the temple proper there in the middle, the, the taller building, and then you've got the buildings that are surrounding it. So they're pointing out to Jesus as they're walking away out of there, the buildings of the temple. Now Herod had begun rebuilding this temple in about 18 A.D., with that central temple building itself being finished about 10 years after that. So that central building took about 10 years. But this collection of buildings with increasing glory and beauty would continue to grow and increase all through Jesus' life and then even after. It would not be until 65 A.D. that all the work was done some 30 years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So these buildings that the disciples were pointing out could have very well looked different from even the last time Jesus had come to town prior to this trip because they were always working on it. So in awe and wonder, the disciples are gushing over this national treasure, gagaing and calling Jesus to do the same with this architectural eye candy. Check it out, Jesus. Look at these buildings. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm giving an intonation. I'm guessing that's kind of what they're... Look, just look. Look, look at what all is. Isn't this beautiful? Isn't this great? And what they get in return from Jesus, well, <laughs> I just said they probably weren't ready for. Look at verse 2. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Imagine somebody saying that at your house. You're like, check out my house. They're like, yeah, I see it. You see it? It's going to get torn down. Like, what? What did you just say? I don't know that we can grasp the enormity of what Jesus is saying here. I don't know if we got anything to compare it to. Again, look back at that picture of what this temple site looked like, sitting on the side of the mountain there in Jerusalem, the crowning jewel of the city of God in their minds, covered almost 40 acres in its entirety, and was ornate and glorious in beauty. They would have been standing, as we'll see in verse 3, to the east on the Mount of Olives, and this is kind of the view from there now, Uh, You look now, it's the Dome of the Rock mosque that's sitting where the temple was. That's kind of the view that they would have had looking over at these buildings that we just had the picture of. And they would have had the temple and all of its buildings in full view. And the disciples, as the disciples pointed out this vast expanse of Herod's handiwork, our verse here in verse 2 starts out with that ominous word, but. Look, Jesus, look. Look how awesome. Look how beautiful. But. 
But Jesus answered, you see all these, do you not? They're like, yeah, we're asking you if you see them. You see, we see them, you see them. Yeah. Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now I figure that garnered a side-eyed glance or a double take from a couple or all 12 of his disciples. You see all these, do you not? Yes. So Jesus is drawing their attention back to the buildings as a means of emphasis. See these buildings, Jesus? Do you see them, Jesus says? Uh, yes. Look at them. You see them? Well, truly, I say to you, Amen, the I am says, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now that's an astounding statement. What if I'd have told you last Sunday that on Wednesday of this past week, some guy would be sitting in Nancy Pelosi's office with his feet up on her desk. I mean, that's shocking, right? Nowhere close to what we're talking about here. Nowhere close. This is inconceivable, you might say. And yes, I do know what that word means. And the disciples are going, what? what, what?" And Jesus says, I'm telling you the truth. Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This vast complex with beautiful buildings, buildings filling up the western horizon for them, Jesus says is going to be utterly devastated with not one stone left upon another having been thrown down, Jesus says. Now listen to this little blurb from John MacArthur on some of these, quote, stones. Quote, For example, some of the stones were 40 feet by 12 by 12. That's a single cut stone quarried and carried. And how they ever elevated a stone like that, which would weigh up to 100 tons, is hard to understand. And they had them going in some places, actually as far as possibly two to 300 feet, just piled high from the bottom of the retaining wall to the top of the wall around the temple. It was a massive undertaking. Some of the stones were as long as 85 feet in length. A single stone cut and quarried, end of quote. And Jesus is saying that all these stones, from the biggest to the smallest, would be demolished and scattered in a throwing down of some sort. Again, I don't know that we have a frame of reference to compare this to. Maybe something that we might be able to compute is standing on the National Mall in D.C. and hearing someone say that all the, all the monuments, all the buildings of the National Capitol would be destroyed. Maybe that might help us make sense of what Jesus is saying. But really, we can't conceive, even in light of this past week's events, right? I mean, we can't imagine. How crazy would we think someone was who stood and said, all of this is going to be decimated, and not one stone will be left on top of another one? First of all, we'd wonder where this person would have gotten this prophetic insight. I'd be incredibly wary of them, would you not? And second, though, we'd probably just not believe them anyway. But here stands Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Messiah of God, God in the flesh, the deliverer of God's people, saying this very thing about this enormous temple complex, the very heart of Jewish life. It was here that sacrifices were being made in this this Passover week that Jesus is a part of. It was here that the nations were to gather and worship the God of the Jews when all things were made right and God delivered His people, right? Well, obviously not. 
not according to Jesus. Jesus is predicting that this whole hillside is going to suffer some catastrophic event that will see it raised, R-A-Z-E-D, to the ground, leveled. All the buildings leveled and all the stones therein thrown down. And it's inconceivable. So naturally, the disciples have questions, right? And that's what we see in verse 3. As he said on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, can you imagine being these disciples and hearing Jesus say what he just said, predicting this catastrophe? They had to be burning with the desire to know what Jesus was talking about. They were probably talking amongst themselves as they crossed the valley and headed up the Mount of Olives. And as they're going, Jesus sits down either to rest or to teach. We can't be sure it doesn't say. Rabbis would sit down to teach in that time. And Mark's gospel tells us that it's Peter, Andrew, James, and John who actually put forth the questions that we see here. And they ask him privately, Matthew says, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Now herein lies the crux of the matter for today and for this whole chapter, really. It will be answers to these questions that will keep us busy for several weeks henceforth. And they want to know, tell us, when will these things be? A natural question, I would say. Right? Jesus, you're saying this place is going to get destroyed. When's that going to happen? When when will these things be? But that's not the only part of the question. They also say, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Well, that certainly muddies the water, doesn't it? If they had only asked when the temple and its buildings would be destroyed, well, that might be pretty straightforward, I would say. History tells us that the Romans came in and literally did fulfill this prophecy in 70 A.D. We've talked about it a couple times in past messages already. That happened, plain and simple. And we'll talk more about it in the coming weeks. But these other two clauses, not Santa's, but clauses, about the sign of Jesus' coming... And about the end of the age. That sounds like it could be referring to other events, right? So when will the temple be destroyed? What will be the sign of Jesus' coming? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? That's what we're going to concern ourselves with here in Matthew chapter 24. And it's quite an undertaking. People have debated this for a couple of millennia now. Okay, I don't think you're going to get the definitive answer from Jason from Helen. Okay? But we're going to give it a good shot, okay? With that in mind, I do want to give you, and please don't let your eyes glaze over here, okay? Stay with me, engage with me. I want to give you some different views, just an overview of some different views of what this passage is talking about, what it's foretelling. And so we're dealing in the field of eschatology, okay? That just means the study of the end times, of end things, eschatology. When we start talking about God's judgment, the coming of Jesus, and the end of the age, that's last things feeling, right? Well, there's some differing camps here if you didn't know this, okay? Let me give you again a very brief overview of some eschatological camps and some interpretive views of Matthew 24 specifically before we move into application. And again, this will be brief, I promise. As far as eschatology goes, there's a lot of different thoughts and views. But the foremost common that we're probably familiar with can be classified chiefly by what's called the millennial reign of Christ. Okay, The millennium is a period of time that is mentioned in the Scripture. Some say a literal thousand years 
where Christ reigns and rules on the earth. Okay? Four views, four primary views of millennialism. Ah, millennialism, post-millennialism, historic premillennialism, and dispensational premillennialism. Let me tell you what, I was so tired of typing millennialism that I just, I, I was done as I prepared for this message. Yeah, yeah you laugh now. Now, don't let those terms turn you off. Let me explain them, and then we'll look at how that affects Matthew 24 specifically. So, ah, millennialism, if you put an A before something, what are you saying? Not. Okay, so all millennialism says there is no literal 1,000-year reign of Jesus on the earth. And the mentions of such a time, um, like Revelation 20, which does say that, should be interpreted figuratively. All millennialists would say that Jesus' reign as the king of the earth actually started with his resurrection and ascension and that his people are representatively living in that kingdom until he does return physically... And in this thought pattern, there's no defining line of difference between Israel and the church, but rather the church is the fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham and the Jewish people. So that's all millennialism. Okay? told you these would be brief. I'm not going to bore you with this. There's plenty to study here. Post-millennialism teaches that the millennial reign might be a literal thousand years or it may just be a long period of time that comes after the gospel has spread and things have gotten better and better leading to the literal reign of Christ. Post-millennialists would say the same thing about Israel and the church as the Oz would say, not the great and powerful Oz, but the millennialists. They would say mainly that there aren't really separate differences between Israel and the church, but, the, but that the church is the fulfillment of the covenant to Israel. There's not many post-millennialists left, really. This was a 19th century, early 20th century thought pattern, kind of a modern thought pattern, which is things are getting better and better, and we're just going to usher in the kingdom. Not many of those people left, right? I mean, again, look around. You're wearing a mask. Things didn't get better and better and usher in the kingdom, okay? But that's, that's kind of the main tenets of post-millennialism. Now, next is historic pre-millennialism, which would say that Jesus will come back physically, and when he does, he will begin a literal reign on earth, which could be specifically a thousand years or maybe just a long period of time. Historic premillennialists would say that the church is the spiritual fulfillment of Israel, much like the amillennialists and the postmillennialists. And then finally, we have dispensational premillennialism, which is probably what most of you all grew up being taught, whether it was called that or not. And me too, me too. And dispensational premillennialism says that Jesus will return physically to earth to set up his reign for a thousand years. And he'll do that following a seven-year tribulation period. The dispensationalists also believe, however, that the church will be raptured before that tribulation period and that Christ's second coming is that rapture, while the millennial reign will actually begin at what could be considered Jesus' third coming. The first being his birth, the second being when he raptures, the church doesn't really return to earth, we meet him in the sky. And then his third trip to earth and its atmosphere will be to set up a literal, physical, 1,000 year reign upon the earth. Dispensationalists would say that the church takes the place of Israel and that God's dealings with the world move from Israel to the church at Pentecost with the possibility of God returning to national and ethnic Israel after he raptures his church. 
Now, I'm going to post an article later on the private Facebook page that gives much more detail about all this. I didn't want to bore you with it today. But we need to understand this. Okay, We need to have these views in mind because all of this affects Matthew 24. And it affects what it means. It affects how we interpret it. Because when you start talking about God's judgment, Christ's return to the end of the age, that's exactly the last things that we need to consider, right? I think so. And so much of what we'll look at in Matthew 24 will revolve around what we interpret. Listen, this is incredibly important. So much of what we'll look at in Matthew 24 will revolve around what we interpret as literal and what we interpret as figurative. And there's no map. Okay? There's no key that says this is literal, this is figurative. But it's going to affect how we interpret Matthew 24 by how we do this. Okay? Um, So, in the same type of thinking as the four types of millennialism, there are a few different ways to look at Matthew 24. Again, very briefly, I'll go over that. Some say that Jesus is answering two different questions in Matthew 24. The first question that he's answering is, when is the temple going to be destroyed? And the second question is about his return in the end of the age. Some say that Jesus is making clear what options may be possible depending on how Israel responds to Jesus. Basically, they say that if Israel had accepted and not rejected their Messiah, Jesus, then Jesus would have returned soon and established His kingdom on the earth as He talks about in Matthew 24. So Jesus' details in Matthew 24 could either happen really soon or in a long time from when Jesus said them. Now, another view, and this is really big, another view is dependent on how the terms age, which we saw in our passage today, and generation are interpreted. Generation is mentioned in Matthew 24, 34. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. That's near the end of Matthew 24. How do you define the term generation? How do you define the end of the age? What age is he talking about? When is the end of the age? What does generation mean? These are big interpretive deals. Some say that age means the end of time, and some say generation can either mean those alive at Jesus' speaking, or it can mean humanity in general as a generation of beings. Or generation and or age could refer to Israel and God's dealings with the Jews. That's important, and we'll spend a lot of time there, just not today. And then some others say that Jesus isn't addressing His return to earth or the end of the age specifically because Jesus Himself says in Matthew twenty four thirty six, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. With this in mind, He's just given signs to watch for to keep His followers in the generation He's speaking to and generations to come to keep them watchful and sober, which is what Matthew 25 and its parables deal mostly with. So through all this, I hope to present to you what some views are and then what I think makes the most biblical sense. It's going to be a gargantuan task. And I know that God has our good in mind with it. And my main goal will be to find the intent of the biblical author, Matthew, under the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He was under the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit, not me. And take that authorial intent and find the timeless principles involved there that we can apply to our lives and glorify God in this process. So buckle up. This is going to get interesting. But for now, I want to look at three application points from our three verses today and try to apply them as best we can. We're going to look at application through three T's. 
And those T's are teaching, temple, and tumult, tumult, T-U-M-U-L-T. Teaching, temple, how would you, how would you pronounce that? Tumult, tumult, just feels funny. Teaching, temple, tumult. So, let's apply these three verses. First is teaching, okay? And this is something that, as far again, the T's are to help you remember what the application points are. The T's are not the application points, okay? That's really important to remember. Just because you can name the T's don't mean that you know what we're talking about and that you can apply what we're talking about. Teaching refers to the good, hard work of interpreting the Bible, Okay? And whose job is that? It's ours. It's yours. It's mine. Now, I have a specific role as far as preaching and teaching. Okay? But it's all of our jobs. If you are a believer, a follower of Jesus, it is your job to try to interpret the Scriptures. They're not just... Little verses here and there that give you some inspiration and help you get through dark times. They're not that at all. It's the very revelation of God to His people. And if God has said something, I want to know what He said. And if I know what He said, I want to know what He meant. And if I know what He meant, I want to be obedient to it. I can't be obedient to what I don't know. And listen, I can't give you enough seed for your sewing bag. I can't do it. We're here one hour a week. It's not enough. You need to be about, I need to be about in my private life, my personal life, the good, hard work of interpreting the Scripture. And it is hard, and it is good. And there's a lot of things you can do. To engage in this process of interpretation. And here's the deal. You're not going to figure it all out. Here's another deal. Especially as we move into Matthew 24. We're not always going to agree about everything. Some of y'all I'm reading some of these views of millennialism. You're going, yeah right. I'll tell you what they told me and it's this. Okay, listen. Be passionate about it. But love your brother. How many churches did you say are in the association, Alan? 38. 38. <laughs> I'd say if we all got together and started talking about Matthew 24 and these 38 churches, we might have 38 different views of what Matthew, or more, right, of what Matthew 24 literally means. Does that mean that God's wrong? Right, right. Does it mean that we can figure it all out? No. But does it mean that we just throw up our hands and say, well, we can't figure it out, so we're not going to try? No. We're not going to agree about anything, but that's not to hinder us as we partner together to turn the world upside down, to impact the ends of the earth until the end of time with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here in this place, amongst our association, amongst the church of God in the world. Now, there are times... To disavow people. There are times to not associate with people. And Paul said, if anybody preaches to you a different gospel than the gospel that I proclaimed to you, consider them damned. Cursed. Don't associate with such a one. Don't even eat with them. 
So what unites us in our biblical interpretation? The gospel unites us. And the gospel will divide us from those who don't agree about the gospel. And it's our job to be in the scriptures, which we do believe are the literal revelations of God to his people. But listen, not all of the Bible is to be interpreted literally. There are some things that will be interpreted literally, some things that will be interpreted figuratively. There are stories in Scripture. And so we take the allegory and we interpret as an allegory. There are historical accounts. We take those as the literal truth and we seek to interpret them that way. You interpret different types of Scripture in different ways. And that's hard work. Another thing to consider is you interpret who is being spoken to, right? We said that Matthew's main goal was to reach his Jewish audience. Now, we've been blessed by Matthew for two plus years here. But Matthew didn't write this gospel to us. So that changes and challenges how we interpret his gospel. Again, I'm not saying it's not for us. It just wasn't written to us. All of this stuff, all of this affects how we interpret Scripture. And what did Paul say to Timothy? 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. Most of you all probably have this memorized. All of Scripture, all 66 books in the canon that we have, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Oh, i got 17 here, but I don't have it here. I did that again. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That makes the Bible awfully important, doesn't it? And then watch this. This is how Paul told Timothy to do this previously in 1 Timothy 4, 15, 16. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, listen, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Our scriptural interpretation, the teaching is going to affect our lives, is going to make us act, live, feel, think, speak, eat, drink differently. And as we immerse ourselves in the teachings, our progress becomes evident to all. And as we make sure that we are diligent to keep a close watch on ourselves in this teaching, as we persist in this, listen, by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. It is so important that you both know and understand the Bible because it is through the Scripture, through the Gospel in the Scripture, that God saves people. You're not going to reach the world with kindness. It's not going to happen. You should be kind. But you're going to change lives with the Gospel And that gospel is found in the scriptures and it's your job to interpret it, to apply it, to live it out and to share it with other people. So that's teaching. Now temple. The disciples stood and they pointed at these buildings. Look at these buildings, Jesus. Do you see the buildings, Jesus? Wow. I bet God must be proud of these buildings, Jesus. Look at what we've done to honor God. 
Herod, our king, look, look at how he's serving God. Look at our buildings. Jesus said, yeah, I see your buildings. And in a few years from now, every rock that's piled up on top of each other on those buildings is going to be thrown down. Do you see the buildings, disciples? Get a good, good long look at them because they're not going to be here long. And within that generation, those buildings were destroyed. So my question for us in application is, Where's your hope? Where's your confidence? What are you boasting in? Especially in your Christian life. Is it that you come to a building every week? I mean, I go to church every week, right? Is it that this building's going to be here? Is it that we're going to be able to broadcast on Facebook and reach thousands of people? Is that where your hope is? Let me tell you what, it can all be gone tomorrow. Every single bit of it. This building, those buildings, whatever it is that you're putting your hope in, be very, 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 very careful. Is it democracy? Is it protection from the state? Is it an old president? A new president? Is that where your hope is? Gone in a flash. God says it this way. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject Him who warns from heaven. At that time His voice shook the earth. But now He has promised. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of all things that are shaken. That is things that have been made. In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, church, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Where's your hope, church? We have an unshakable kingdom. And Don alluded to this last week in his message. These kingdoms will fall. These administrations will end. These senators and representatives will come and go. Your life is but a vapor. Don't put your confidence and your hope in these things. We have received a kingdom, praise God, that cannot be shaken. So, worship. Worship Him, not things and people and institutions and buildings. Temple's going to be torn down, y'all. Enjoy it, but don't put your hope in it. Some trust in chariots, the psalmist says in Psalm 27 and 8. 
Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Not because we're better than them, but because of who God is and because of what God has done. Don't put your faith in chariots and horses. Don't trust in them. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. That's what temple is about. Teaching temple and finally tumult. When our temples are thrown down, and they will be, we can worry and fear that God has abandoned us. We can think this is the worst thing that's ever happened in our lifetimes, and it may be. But God has not abandoned us. God will not abandon us. Sometimes, well, I guess I might as well say all the time, God did not only know about the tumult that was coming. It's all a part of God's plan. Jesus said, not one stone of those buildings will be left upon another. And that was part of God's plan. See, the scripture says, our God is in the heavens. And he does whatever he pleases. Same scriptures say, as for God, His way is perfect. Do not let the tumult of the culture, of the world, of the structures that we put our hope in far too many times, don't let the destruction of these things shake your faith in the unshakable kingdom that is founded by God alone. Tumult is coming and always will be coming. Don't let that shake your faith in who God is. So look at this. Psalm 2, 1 through 6. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His capital A anointed saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens... He laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury saying, As for me, God says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. What does Jesus say at the end of Matthew? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So as the nations rage and as they take their counsel together, of how they can burst apart the bonds of God and do their own thing, God laughs at their foolishness and says, I've already set my king on my holy hill. The tumult cannot undo that. Will not undo that. Lastly, Jesus John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. In the world you will have tumult, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Y'all, I'm about to jump up on this pulpit. Hold your ears. I ain't playing.
That's good news. And you know what the world needs? The world needs a gospel-fired people who have this emblazoned on their souls and stand up in the middle of a crooked and perverse generation and proclaim the goodness of God in the land of the living. Though you slay me, I will hope. Your plans are still to prosper. You've not forgotten us. You're with us in the fire and the flood. You are faithful forever. You're perfect in love. You are sovereign over all of us. So I will lift my eyes. See him as the awesome God that he is. Proclaim the gospel of his perfect kingdom. That Jesus Christ did indeed come in the flesh, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died upon a Roman cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He died, he was buried, he was resurrected, he showed himself alive to over 500 people over a period of 40 days. Then he ascended into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of God the Father, reigning and ruling over everything. And if we will confess our sins and our need for a Savior, Jesus Christ will save you. He saved me. That's what the teaching tells us. Therefore, I will not put my faith or my hope in temples or in chariots or horses. And as the tumult comes, I will proclaim the excellencies of him who has called me out of darkness into his marvelous light. The world needs now more than ever, church. And they need the gospel of Jesus Christ that he will proclaim through us in the midst of all this tumult. Let's pray. God, all we can say is, even so, come Lord Jesus. We long for your coming. We long for you to make all things right. And as we live here in this already but not yet kingdom, help us to hear your words, know your words, share your words, and put our faith in you and your words. And may we not be shaken as everything around us is shaken. You are our hope. Only you can save us, and we trust you to do that, God. We love you because you loved us first. And we praise you for that and ask you to save souls. Heal our nation. Heal our world. Have your way. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction, please? Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. If you're going to hang out, go outside. We'll love you better out there.